Welcome to Scripture Studies, a verse-by-verse study of the Bible. I'm your host, Scott Sperling. We are continuing our study of Romans chapter 8. This is the first part of a two-part study on verses 29 and 30 of that great chapter. So grab your Bible, sit back, and open your hearts and minds as we study the Word of God together. Well, we're nearing the end of the great and significant chapter of Romans 8. So please turn to Romans 8, verse 29 in your Bible, which is where we'll pick up our studies today. In our last study, we discussed Romans 8:28, one of the most beloved verses of the Bible. As part of that study, we talked about how the structure of the verse, as originally constructed, leads into the section of Romans that we're starting today. Let's read again Romans 8.28 in order to review what I'm talking about. We'll use the ESV translation, which I think is the best English translation of this verse, because it preserves the original Greek word ordering of the phrases, which is something that we talked about last week. Let's read it. Romans 8.28, quote, And we know that for those who love God... All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose." We talked last week about how in this verse there are two phrases which describe Christians. The first one describes Christians from a human point of view and from the point of view of free will. It describes the Christian as those who love God. And this phrase points backwards in the book of Romans because the chapters leading up to Romans 8.28 concerned living the Christian life, life as a Christian from a human point of view. Paul wrote quite a bit in the preceding chapters about the choices that we make as Christians, how we need to choose to have faith in Christ in order to be justified, how we need to choose as Christians to be servants of God rather than slaves to sin. So, from a human point of view, being a Christian is all about the choices that we make. And one of them is, as Paul points out in verse 28, is that we are those who love God. The second phrase in Romans 8.28 that describes Christians is given from God's point of view. Christians are described as those who are called according to God's purpose. God in his sovereignty calls us according to his purpose. And it is that calling which defines us as Christians. Paul expands on this in the next two verses, in verses 29 and 30, which are the verses that we'll be looking at today and next week. Here's what he writes. Let's read Romans 8, 29 and 30. Quote, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified." We have in these two verses a description of the Christian that's squarely focused on God's point of view. God had foreknowledge of us, and then he predestined us to be like Christ, and those he predestined, he called justified and glorified. We have in these verses introduced to us one of the most difficult concepts in the Bible, probably the most difficult concept, and that is, how can we reconcile the fact that in many places in the Bible it seems that we become Christians by an act of our own free will, or as some would phrase it, an act of human responsibility by choosing to have faith in Christ, 
And yet, in other places in the Bible, it seems that we become Christians according to an act of God's sovereignty. We are called, we are chosen, we are Christians according to God's election, as it's sometimes phrased. Can these two things be reconciled? God's sovereignty versus human responsibility. Today, we'll be discussing this subject in general because it's a subject that's quite important. And also, it's a subject that many people most people really, probably all people, find difficult, to say the least. Today, we'll be looking at this subject in detail and see whether we can resolve it in some way, satisfactorily. And then next week, we'll actually get back to the text in Romans and look at verses 29 and 30 specifically. So, as I said, this is one of the most difficult concepts in the Bible, reconciling the passages that indicate that becoming a Christian is an act of free will and human decision versus the passages indicating that God chooses or elects who becomes a Christian. Now, the Bible scoffers would just say that the Bible is full of contradictions and that this is just one more of them. And to answer that, I would say that they could possibly have a point with that argument if it were the case that one biblical author said one thing and a different biblical author said another thing. If that were the case, then maybe the Bible scoffers would have a point. Maybe that would be proof that the Bible is full of contradictions. However, that's not the case. It's not the case where we have some New Testament authors saying you become a Christian by your own human responsibility and different New Testament authors saying that you become a Christian by an act of God's will. That's not the case. Rather, what we have in the New Testament is that all of the major New Testament authors, Paul, Peter, John, and then Jesus himself, through quotations, all of them affirm both of these things. And at times, both of these things are affirmed within a single passage of Scripture, and sometimes even within a single verse. And we saw that here in Romans 8.28, and we talked about this quite a bit last week. In a single verse, Paul describes the Christian both as someone who, is, who has made a choice out of his own free will to love God, And in the very same verse, he describes a Christian as someone who was chosen specifically by God, someone who was called according to God's purpose. So it's not the case, as the Bible scoffers might claim, that you have one biblical author saying one thing and another biblical author unknowingly contradicting the other author. No, what we have in the Bible is each of the major authors of the New Testament stating both sides of these seemingly contradictory doctrines, and they state them both to be true, sometimes even within a single verse. Given this, I think what we can learn from this is that maybe though we think that these concepts contradict each other, maybe they actually don't. Certainly, Paul, Peter, John, and Jesus didn't think that they contradicted each other because, as I said, each of these authors state that both that we become Christians by an act of free will, an act of our own human responsibility by having faith in Christ, and also by an act of God's sovereignty. Let's look at some passages by each of these authors where each author affirms both sides. First, Paul. In his great statement of the gospel in Romans 3, Paul said this, We'll read Romans 3, 21 and 22. Quote, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Unquote. Given through faith to all who believe. 
it sounds here that our destiny is in our own hands. To gain the righteousness necessary to avoid God's wrath, we need to make the choice to believe in Jesus Christ. And yet, here in Romans chapter 8, here's what Paul says. And this is, these are the verses we just read. Um, let's read them again. Verses 29 and 30 of Romans 8. Quote, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Unquote. It sounds here like our salvation is in the hands of God. God predestines who will be called, justified, and glorified. This is one author within the same book writing about both of these things. So clearly, to Paul, these things don't contradict each other. Now let's look at the writings of Peter. Peter opens his first epistle with these words describing his fellow Christians. Let's read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Quote, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Unquote. Peter said, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That's God's sovereignty at work. And then, just a few verses later, here's what he says in verses 8 and 9 of the same chapter. Quote, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Unquote. Here, Peter describes the importance of faith as determining Quote, the salvation of our souls, unquote. Or as he says, you're receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We have the human responsibility to have faith in Christ. And if we do, we will be saved. Same author, same chapter even, giving us both points of view and stating that both are true. Now let's look at the words of Jesus as found in the Gospel of John. Here we have the author, the Apostle John, quoting what Jesus taught. Um, in John chapter 6, verse 47, here's what Jesus says, quote, Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life, unquote. Again, the faith of the believer bringing his or her salvation. And yet, here's what Jesus said just a few verses before that in John chapter 6, verse 44. Quote, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. Unquote. This teaches us the sovereignty of God over who was drawn to Christ. So clearly, these authors and Jesus himself did not think that these two concepts contradicted each other. They all see a compatibility in some way in the requirement that we make the free choice to believe in Christ and the fact that God is sovereign over who comes to Christ. And certainly, as I've said, Paul sees no incompatibility between these two concepts. He's been saying many times up to this point in the book of Romans that we're justified by faith. That's, in fact, really the main theme for the first eight chapters of Romans. But now, as I said, Paul will start looking at things from God's point of view. And he makes clear that God is sovereign over who comes to Christ. 
Let's look in more detail at the verses in today's passage. Let's read again Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Quote, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Unquote. The difficult word in this phrase, for many of us humans, is the word predestined. We, li- we humans like to have free will. We like to believe that we ourselves are in total control. Most humans, I think, desire to cry out with the British poet William Ernest Henley, quote, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul, unquote. Paul shatters that illusion to a great extent here in these verses and in the verses moving forward, especially in chapter 9 of, of Romans. Here in verse 29, it clearly states that God predestined those who were to be conformed to the image of Christ. He predestined who would be called, justified, and glorified, as Paul teaches us in the next verse. And as I said, a lot of us don't like to hear that, I think, because it teaches us that, in some sense, we're not the masters of our fate, nor are we the captains of our souls. Now. Some find a bit of mitigation to the idea of complete predestination in the qualification that Paul makes here. Note carefully that Paul says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined. Here here and in other passages, there seems to be taught the idea that the predestination or election of those who would be justified is based in some way on God's foreknowledge. This seems to be indicated in the passage from 1 Peter that we looked at earlier. So, so let's read it again more carefully with this in mind. 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 1 and 2. To God's elect, again, this is a word that many of us who love our free will don't like, embedded in the meaning of the word elect is that God picks and chooses who will be saved. Anyway, quote, to God's elect, exile scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen, again, God's sovereignty over the situation. But look at what Peter says next. Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, unquote. So again here, Peter seems to agree with Paul that foreknowledge has something to do with who God chooses, who God elects. Here this concept is confirmed twice here in the Bible by two different authors. And I think that maybe we can accept the concepts of election and predestination when it's based in some way on the foreknowledge of God. Now, because we are not God, we can't really figure out how this whole thing works. We have no way of really thinking how God thinks and seeing things how God sees things because we're extremely limited as compared to God in our intellectual capabilities. We're certainly not omniscient, certainly not all-knowing, and and we certainly don't have the capabilities to see the end from the beginning. We don't have any sort of true foreknowledge about anything. So it's difficult for us to know exactly how foreknowledge is related to predestination. But we can speculate about it, and we can meditate about it and ponder it. And as I said, I think that people are more open to this idea of election or predestination when it's tied to foreknowledge. Because we speculate something like this. Well, God in his foreknowledge can discern our personalities or our tendencies or the types of choices that we'll make in life. And so on that basis, he predestines us one way or the other. 
And there are some scholars who would agree with what I just said and would agree that that's a valid way to look at the election of the saints. But then there are other scholars who would pronounce me almost a heretic for even thinking what I just said. So go figure. Uh, you, You can't really pronounce someone a heretic for just, you know, meditating on what the Word of God says. You know, give me a break. And clearly, if you just read the words on the page right there in black and white from both Paul and Peter, there absolutely is some relationship between the foreknowledge of God and whom God chooses to be his elect, to be his chosen people. It's right there in black and white on the page. Now, as we speculate, we have to be humble, I think, because as I said, we have absolutely no idea about what it's like to be God and what it's like to have his intellectual powers, all-knowing, all-seeing, in all places and times at once, possibly even. And there are some scholars, as I hinted before, who would absolutely, you know, almost call me a heretic for even suggesting that we humans play any role in coming to Christ. However, as I read the Bible, there are a multitude of verses which explicitly state that we ourselves need to do certain things in order to be saved. More specifically, we are to have faith. And to me, to have faith in Christ is a decision that we humans make. As I look at things from a human point of view, which really is the only thing that I can do because I'm a human. Anyway, as I do that, I'm told in the Bible that if I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead, then I will be saved. That's from Romans chapter 10, verse 9. And I'm told that from, you know, John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That act of believing in Christ is an act that I take. It's something that I do. It's a choice that I make as far, you know, as far as I can tell. So if someone tells me that based on Romans 8.29, where Paul says that God predestined who would be conformed to the image of his son, if someone tells me based on that verse that there is nothing that I can do to be saved, then I would tell them that they're ignoring the whole other half, so to speak, of the Bible that says that I need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. The Bible states very clearly that I, as a human being, and from a human point of view, absolutely need to have faith in Christ in order to be saved. So you can't ignore that, because that too is God's word. Given these things, my philosophy in dealing with these concepts, in reconciling these seemingly contradictory concepts is this. Let God be God and humans be human. I have absolutely no idea of what it's like to be God, and I have no idea concerning what basis that God makes in choosing who will be predestined to be conformed to his image. But I do know this. He tells me in his word to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and I'll be saved. And so I'm going to do that. As a human, I'm going to make that choice. And he tells me in his word to confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. And so I'll do that too. I'll make that choice as a human because that's what I am. You know, I am a human. I'm not God. So I can't see things as God sees things. I'm only human. And so, yes, I'll say, Jesus, you are my Lord. And, and he says in his word that for those who love him, all things work together for the good. So, yes, Lord, I love you with all my heart because I have seen how you work things out for my good. So I praise the Lord for that. So, 
let God be God and let humans be human. As I said, we don't know what it's like to be God, but we do know what we're told to do as humans. And so we need to make choices according to those things. And let me tell you, these are difficult concepts, which the best scholars that the world has ever known have debated for centuries. D.A. Carson wrote a modern classic on the subject. He's a professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Chicago, and one of the most respected living theologians. He wrote, as I said, a modern classic on this subject, which is called Divine Sovereignty and Human Responsibility. Here's what he said about this subject in general in that book. Quote, Perhaps no area of doctrine has been more consistently debated throughout the 20 centuries of Christianity's life than that of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Unquote. So, given that scholars have been d- debating this for over 20 centuries and still not gotten to the bottom of it or reached any consensus on it, I don't think that we can expect to totally reconcile everything in an hour-long Bible study. As I mentioned before, how can we reconcile these things when we have no idea what it's like to be God? We have no idea what it's like to see things as God sees them. We tend to anthropomorphize God, which means to assume that God does things and views things and sees things as humans do. But he doesn't. He is all-seeing, all-knowing, and we have no idea what his really relationship to time is even. Is he outside of time? Is he in a different time frame? Does he see all time periods at once? All these things that, that we don't know about God and how he sees things make it impossible to come up with a fully satisfactory answer to this tension between God's sovereignty and in human responsibility. I think the reconciliation of these concepts needs to be taken on faith. In the Bible, they're not presented as contradictory concepts. So, given that we don't have the intellectual capacity to see things as God does, I think we need to take it on faith that they aren't contradictory. D.A. Carson, who I quoted above, likens this issue to a puzzle for which we just don't have all the pieces. Here's what he says, quote, For us mortals, there are no rational, logical solutions to the sovereignty-responsibility tension. But on the other hand, it is difficult to see why logical inconsistency is necessitated, especially in view of the many ambiguous parameters and numerous unknown quantities. The whole tension remains restless in our hands, but it's the restlessness of having a few randomly selected pieces of the jigsaw puzzle when thousands more are needed to complete the design." We are limited as humans. We don't have all the pieces of the puzzle, as D.A. Carson says. Given this, it's best that we approach this subject with humility and admit that we may not find an answer that perfectly satisfies us. Henry Alford, one of the most respected biblical Greek experts in history, he wrote a book of notes on the New Testament focusing primarily on interpreting the precise meaning of the Greek text. This book is still, this set of books actually, is still used as a reference by 
uh, really most scholars who write commentaries on the Bible. Anyway, here's what he said about the difficulty of this tension between God's sovereignty and, and human responsibility and free will as these concepts are taught in the Bible. Here's what he said, quote, it may suffice to say that on the one hand, Scripture bears constant testimony to the fact that all believers are chosen and called by God, their whole spiritual life, in its origin, progress, and completion being from Him. While on the other hand, its test testimony is no less precise that God wills all to be saved, and that none shall perish except by willful rejection of the truth. So that on the one side, God's sovereignty, on the other, man's free will is plainly declared to us. To receive, believe, and act on both of these is our duty and our wisdom. They belong as truths, and everyone who believes in a God must acknowledge both. But all attempts to bridge over the gulf between the two are futile in the present imperfect condition of man. The very reasonings used for this purpose are clothed in language framed on the analogies of this lower world, and wholly inadequate to describe God regarded as He is in Himself." Unquote. What Professor Alfred is saying here is, Rather than getting all intellectually tied up in knots about these subjects, we can choose to accept both sides of the issue and acknowledge in humility that we'll never fully understand these concepts completely. And we can also do another thing. We can choose to look at the beauty of these concepts as presented to us in the Bible. Let's look once more at Romans 8.28, which speaks on both sides of the issue. As we've noted, in Romans 8.28, the, the Christian is described in two ways, one from a human point of view, the other from a God's point of view. From the human point of view, we're those who love God. We're those who make the choice out of our free will to love God. From God's point of view, we are those who are called according to His purpose. There's a symmetry here, and there's a beauty in the symmetry here. On the one side, here we are as humans reaching up to God, desiring to carry out His will in our lives, proclaiming our faith in the work of His Son, Jesus Christ, and choosing to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then, on the other side, we have God reaching down to us and choosing each and every one of us as His own. And it's the testimony of the Bible that both of these things are necessary for salvation. It's necessary for us to reach out to God and choose Him for us, but also necessary for God to reach out to us and choose us for Him. And that's a beautiful symmetry, in my opinion, and a viewpoint that, at least in my mind, that gives me peace when pondering these things. We hope you enjoyed today's study. If you're interested in other studies in this series, visit scripturestudies.com. That's scripturestudies, all one word, dot com. Or just Google Scripture Studies by Scott Sperling, and you're sure to find the site. The background music is licensed through Pond 5. The theme music and interludes are by Scott Sperling, all rights reserved. Until we meet again, live well, serve the Lord with passion, and always lean on the Holy Spirit. May the Lord be with you in all your endeavors. Amen.